0: You're listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending and how to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk. And now, enjoy Factual America with our host, Matthew Sherwood.
1: Welcome to Factual America, a podcast that explores the themes that make America unique through the lens of documentary filmmaking. I'm your host Matthew Sherwood, and every two weeks, it is my pleasure to interview documentary filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Uh, we're coming to you from Spiritland Studios here in uh, Kings Cross, London, England. It's our usual uh, home away from home, and today's topic is, uh, well, quite topical. It's the 2020 U.S. presidential election, a Super Tuesday edition. We're gonna, we're recording this a couple of weeks ahead of Super Tuesday. We're gonna turn this one around quickly and get it out to you. Ahead of the um, head of the big day, and um, our guest today is Adithya Sambamurthy, um, fellow Texan, uh, producer, director, and camera operator based in London. So welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, Adi has over 15 years' uh, experience, works on television documentaries, web series, numerous independent uh, productions. He's won a News and Documentary Emmy Award. So congratulations, you're our first Emmy Award winner to <laughs> have on the show. Uh, you've got a Peabody. Yeah, so uh, you've been nominated for Emmys three times, and he's spent 2016 and 2018 on the campaign trail, and I gather you're headed back out there in a few weeks' time, isn't that right?
2: That's right, yeah.
1: Okay. Um, so as we rock and roll here at uh, Factual America, the the main thing that we do is, well, the, we start things off by um, asking guests to pick a film. I, uh, I, th- I think you were keen to show someone else's work, but I wanted to show yours, so... Uh, So uh, we we trumped your modesty, uh, no pun intended, and um, we um, are going to look at a series that you worked on uh, called Anywhere But Washington. Uh, 2016 and 2018. I think he even had one 20s I think there was even another one in there with a special election in Georgia too. That's correct. Yeah, but uh, it was a series of shorts that you could, from the Guardian uh, newspaper here in uh, in Britain. Uh, the journalist presenter is Paul Lewis. Uh, you're the producer, cameraman, and everything else. I gather. <laughs> yeah, Eddie, and um, so. What we usually then say is, well, we usually ask why you've picked the film. Uh, We didn't give you that option. But uh, what is Anywhere But a Washington all about?
2: Sure. Um, so the series really started up, and the, the idea for the series actually started here in the UK. The Guardian has a very a long running and very popular series called Anywhere But Westminster, which is run by uh, you know fronted by John Harris, uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, one of their columnists, um, and uh, with a video producer journalist um, doing the production side of things, um, John Domokos. and they've been doing this for well over a decade now, mm. um, and it's uh, uh, has a cult following as. It was quite you know very interesting work, um, and um, when uh, I came on board um, uh, to the Guardian um, in the U.S., um, there was already an idea floating uh, to make uh, a similar kind of series, or conceptually anyway, a similar kind of series in in America. Uh, now, of course, we. America is America, the UK is the UK, different places. You know, there's a lot of differences. Our series is not that similar to the Anywhere But Westminster series. Uh, But what we wanted to do was tell stories of places and still tell stories of people and get away from the sort of the minutiae of the campaign trail. Um, So um, the other thing we wanted to do was make a series that was topical and that we could turn around quickly and that could be, you know, that was, you know, episodic, quick turnaround, nimble, mm. um, that we could react to things that were happening. Um, uh, and so, you know, typically we would produce um, uh, an episode, we would shoot in four days and edit in about a week. So these are very, very fast, fast produced, and, um, and you know, the turnaround is pretty quick. Yeah. Um,
1: and uh, are you going back uh, this year?
2: Yes. Um, so this is hopefully going to be... Um, you know, a, a really a, a much a longer running project. Um, this would be the third election that we'll be doing this for. Um, and so the idea is to go back and uh, make more episodes ahead of the general.
1: And is, uh, is Paul Lewis presenting as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, very good. I think what would be great now is just to jump straight into a, to a clip. Um, and the clip we've chosen is from your 2016, one of the, when you're on the campaign trail in 2016, uh, you went to a place called, uh, We well, went to McDowell County, Porce County in the one of the poorest states in the union in West Virginia. And it's called Why the Poorest County in West Virginia Has Faith in Donald Trump. Uh, Maybe set the scene for us.
2: Sure, yeah. So, um, McDowell County is in coal country, um, you know, on on the West Virginia side of, you know, the Appalachian Trail. Um, And uh, it's a place that's been largely forgotten, I think, um, you know, over the last 30 years, um, more than 30 years, really. it's actually an unusual place to go um, because it is, you know, I don't think that it's uh, a microcosm of America by any stretch. It is its own place. Um, mm-hmm. The reason we went there is because um, in the 2016 primary election, Donald Trump won a whopping 92% of the vote. And we were curious as to why people were so, you know, well, what was that about? Yeah. Um, so we went there.
1: Okay. Let's... um. Uh, a little bit more McDowell County, but uh, let's go to the clip first, and then uh, we'll uh, talk a bit more about it then.
3: During the primaries, a higher percentage of people here voted for Donald Trump than anywhere else in America. It's also the poorest county in one of the poorest states in the country.
4: See, I live in that apartment building across the street. I get up in the morning, come over here at eight, make me some coffee, read my paper, And kill kill time. Ed Shepard
3: is 92. His gas station stopped pumping in 1995.
4: Up this main street there wasn't an empty building that didn't have a a prosperous business in it. But little by little they began to close one after the other. And now it's down to a ghost town, a ghost county really.
3: When was the last time someone stopped
4: and asked you for some help? Oh, I don't know, four or five days ago, I don't remember exact. Occasionally somebody will pull in the driveway, ask them for directions. Or they're looking for something else in the county. All the good activity is gone and we're just sitting here now.
3: I want to find more people who are still clinging on in McDowell. I asked for a tour from Sabrina Schrader, an anti-poverty campaigner up for re-election to the House of Delegates in the next door county. Born and raised in McDowell, she introduces me to people from her childhood. Alma McNeely used to have a good factory job. Now she recycles cans for extra money.
0: When I was little, there was plenty of jobs. Uh, You got timber and coal mines. and. uh, People at filling have putting in filling stations, working on cars and stuff. Coal fields gone. They done tempered everything out, so
4: that leaves about everybody gone.
3: Where do you pick up cans from?
0: Road. Any worse? How much is it by pound? I think it's forty-five cents now. So
4: it's not. I mean, you gotta no. get a lot to get forty-five cents. Yeah, it's a lot of work. You always got to start at the bottom of the totem boat. Well, you don't, or we started out at the bottom, so that's where we got to start, but rich people, most of them didn't start out at the bottom. No, they started at the top and stayed at the top. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's impossible for them to have our perspective and understand what to do to help millions of poor people when they haven't been poor themselves. They can't design a system that's going to help us.
3: What is the appeal of Donald Trump?
0: People are desperate for hope. Trump says, "I'm going to make America great again,"
4: and they want to believe something good. They'll do just about anything for a job because they want to feed their families. So they're getting tricked, they're getting manipulated, and they believe things are different than what they are
1: okay, I think that's a that's a that's a great clip. I mean, as you've already alluded to, I mean um, I think it's mentioned in the in the film, um, you know we Factual America of our own researchers have done a little research. It's uh, lowest life expectancy in the U.S. Uh, it's uh, declined, actually. Uh, 3.2 years for men and 4.1 years for women between 1985 and 2013. Highest rate of drug-induced deaths in the U.S. out of all the 3,000-something counties. Uh, its population has declined by 82% between 1950 and 2018. Okay, I don't want to keep throwing stats at you, uh, but... Um, I think what's interesting, too, I had discovered it's a – we talk about Obama-Trump counties and districts, and we'll be maybe talking about that later in the in the show. But it's an Obama-Romney-Trump county, which uh, is very interesting. So – but my question to you is, shouldn't this be Democrat territory?
2: Yes. Um, I think if you were to think about the people th- – so the people – that we spoke with, many of them had been lifelong Democrats. These are folks who, um, or at least grew up in families that had been Democrat because these were, you know, uh, uh, this is coal mining country. Uh, unions used to be very strong here. Mm-hmm. Um, these are blue collar Democrats or were blue collar Democrats. I think the, the shift, um, uh, you know, away from the Democratic Party has been long coming there. This is not a a Donald Trump phenomenon necessarily. This is very much something that's been going on for a long time. Um, However, I think, you know, I think that the consensus of, you know, since, you know, I would uh, say since the, you know, the late 80s, the the sort of the consent, the political consensus that was reached has largely, people feel sidelined by the political consensus that America um, or the American let's say, the establishment um, sort of embraced. Um, uh, and and so people were looking for changes. So I'm actually not that surprised that um, this is a county that went for Barack Obama and then for Mitt Romney and then for Donald Trump mm. because um, they were looking for change candidates. And uh, while Romney may have not necessarily campaigned as a change candidate, he was a change from Barack Obama. Right.
1: And I guess in this particular case, maybe uh, I'm sure the Obama administration wasn't necessarily known as being coal friendly, so I think that probably turned a lot of people off as well.
2: That's exactly right.
1: But as you say, this is a this is a, th- a trend that's been long coming. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when West Virginia was—you could, can, can, you know—it was almost uh, assumed it would always be on the Democratic side of things. It hasn't been Democratic for many election now, and I think it. I think uh, McDowell County sort of was lagging behind the rest of the state in some ways. But, uh, I mean, what are, the, uh, what are the Democrats getting wrong, do you think? Hmm. Um, you know, I will
2: defer to the people that are sort of on the ground there. Um, so we spent time with uh, a young lady who was running for uh, the state legislature um, there, uh, Sabrina Schrader. Who and, we just saw in um, the
1: uh, clip, actually,
2: exactly, and you know when you when you speak to folks who are from there, I think generally speaking, um, I I would say that the Democratic Party is, I think the Republican Party has done a good job painting the Democratic Party as uh, as out of touch with mm. average people, um, uh, and I think there um, you know people who have been voting for Democrats and haven't seen any improvements in their lives are. Are very um, open to the idea yeah. and view the Democratic Party with a lot of skepticism now.
1: Um, and, and whether things have been taken out of context or not, I mean, let's face it: these people are—they they're their tune. They know that this gets called flyover country, and Hillary Clinton called them the deplorables, if you will. You know, I mean, I think, uh, I think this is actually a good point to look at a second clip because then you went back to McDowell County in 2018 and you've got a short that i highly recommend it's called how a democrat can win in trump land so i think this is very apropos to where we've gotten in the conversation so uh, let's take a look at um that clip now
3: Hey, hey, how's the economy doing around here it has Done much better.
4: Mines are starting to come back.
3: There's more people going back to work.
4: And this than a swing
5: dollar and a half a day.
3: Do you think the president's made much difference? I think he has
4: that. As far as I'm concerned, he's bringing jobs back. He's done amazing for our country.
3: Hey, hey, West Virginia's third congressional district, where Trump won with 73% of the vote in 2016, and few people seem to have any regrets. So what kind of Democrat could win here? Meet Richard Ojeda, retired army major, populist Democrat, and former Trump voter.
5: Republicans have call this Trump country. It's not Trump country. And believe me, when a person that's filthy rich says things like people need to learn to live within their means, They have no concept of what life is like to a single parent trying to put food on the table. We have a lot of politicians out there that that claim to, to, to be with the people, but they don't show up. I show up.
3: A meeting of the United Mine Workers of America and a chance to learn more about Ajeda's politics.
5: When we get to the point where all we have is the filthy rich and the dirt poor, the dirt poor will eat the filthy rich. The majority of the people across America are not the elite far more of the working class citizens than there are anything else.
3: Do you think the sort of millionaires and billionaire class of America sort of knows
5: how people- They don't, that they is? cannot relate. And look, I got nothing against a person that's wealthy, but you know, the people that are in power, they can't relate to these people. You're pro coal. Yeah. What does that mean in terms of policy terms? I'm pro coal miner, okay? I believe that there still is a need for coal, but in terms of energy, We need to stop lying to people and telling them that, oh, coal's going to be king again. It's not. How we doing, sir?
3: Ojeda's honesty may be admirable, but it's also risky. When I last came here in 2016, Trump was promising to breathe life into a dying coal industry. Two years on, more coal trains are running, but the long-term outlook for the industry is still bleak. But the optics look good for Trump. Heading into midterms with a strong economy and low unemployment.
1: So, um, you know, we've just seen this clip from uh, from your 2018 visit to McDowell County. I mean, what, what? do you want to say something about that in terms of uh, sort of, we didn't set up the piece going in, uh, but uh, what your experience was versus going in 2016?
2: Yeah, um, so we, you know, Decided to go back, Paul, actually, this was Paul. Paul's idea, Paul Lewis, uh, the correspondent, um, and um, and revisit with some of the same folks that we met in 2016 to see what had changed now that Donald Trump was the president. And they had believed in him early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think as you can see from um, uh, the clip, um, you know, there is a, a perception that things are better. Um, and, you know... It's it's hard to put a number to people's beliefs and hopes and aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2016, Sabrina Schrader says, you know, they're looking for some some they're looking for hope. Yeah. They're hopeful now. Yeah. He's the president, you know, and they believe that things are getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, you know, I think that the pervasive feeling that we found talking to to people, you know, uh, at county fairs, you know, uh, uh, on shift at shift change from the local coal mine, like coal miners who were coming off of um, their shift, was that uh, a sense of hope and optimism, mm. uh, and that and you know the the a memorable line that we were told was that you know the lo- local coal miners were calling coal trains Trump trains. Uh, and I think that says a lot about um, uh, the perception of how things have changed.
1: And are you going back to McDowell County? Do you know yet?
2: Um, that's the plan. That so we want plan. to go back. Um, so um, unfortunately and really sadly, um, Paw, who is the oh, elderly yeah, gentleman yeah. who we met uh, twice, um, yeah. uh, who is Sabrina's grandfather, passed away. Okay. Um, and But we still hope to go and spend time okay. in the community.
1: I- you know, it, would, it was very tempting to maybe show some of the clips of Paul in there, but you can't understand anything he says. So uh, unless you're watching this and not listening to it on podcast, you would not get anything out of those segments, I think. Um, but oh, I'm, I'm sad to hear that, actually. By the way, is, uh, the, the, the 92-year-old guy in the first one, is he still – do you know if he's still around? Or That's a good
2: question. Um, we tried to locate him, but yeah. we couldn't. I'm yeah. not sure.
1: Okay. Hmm. All right. I thought he was a very compelling character, Great great interview. Absolutely. Um, so, so you've been 2016. We mentioned special election 2017. We've got 2018. You've been on the campaign trail all across the U.S., uh, not just West Virginia. Uh, what struck you most?
2: Um, I think in 2016, the thing that I was surprised by was the anger that was there. Um, and, uh, I guess, you know, I, you know, I, I lived in, you know, I lived in Texas. I I worked and lived in the South for a long time. Um, I thought that I had a good sense of, um, you know, just general perception, like political perceptions, but um i was surprised by how angry people were in 2016
1: so even even angrier than you know the tea party movement that we saw sort of 10 years ago or so
2: um i think i think a lot of that same kind of anger yeah, yeah i think that's carried over yeah. um uh, but you know to me at least the tea party was you know it was uh, in my in my opinion was very much a segment of the like a, a fringe of the population if you will um, I'm talking about just regular people um, you know
1: it, we're not showing the clip actually but uh, it reminds me of one you did um, on the border wall so you went to Arizona in the Sonora desert and then you also uh you went to Sun City or mostly a retirement community and you interview you talked to a lot of people there it's a oh it's the Republican party I think uh, meeting and what struck me was the uh, the anger there, and uh, Paul even says something to the fact that, um, you know, he's, um, he feels a little bit threatened, even when he, especially when he meets Trump voters, I I should add, Uh, but what was your reception? Because you were talking to me earlier about how actually being now based here and representing a British newspaper, and you got a different reception than you might have had otherwise, maybe you can say a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, um, so I... I do believe that um, coming um, from—so the way this tends to work for the series is that um, I am usually the first point of contact um, for— you know, for us, in terms of you know reaching out to people that we, you know, we, we do a fair amount of sort of pre-production, as it's called, which is to say, we I just make a lot of phone calls ahead of time, try to figure out where we might want to be. Of course, we pivot depending on what we think is happening when, once we get somewhere. But there is sort of a basic infrastructure in place. So, what the thing that I find um, um, I've, I've been, you know, I, I think um, is different from working for an American news organization is that. Um, A lot of Americans are very skeptical of, or a lot of Republicans, I should say, are very skeptical of mainstream news organizations in America, uh, if not downright hostile. And that is um, very different when you're coming from the UK. So a lot of people, in 2016, not that many people had really heard of The Guardian, didn't really know much about the organization. We were able to get into rooms and have interviews, candid interviews with people that I don't think we would have been able to get if we had come from a, an established mainstream mm. American outlet. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Uh, that started to change in 2018. I think people started to, to <laughs> sort of look at the series. They started to yeah. background us more, yeah. and there was more hesitancy. But um, I'd like to think that at the end of the day, we've tried to be fair and even handed to people. And and um, and even, you know, people that um, – like, we, we've had emails, you know, and, and responses from people who we interviewed who said, you know what, like – I didn't appreciate everything, but I thought that I came off fairly, which is you know all I can have, you know, which yeah. is all we can hope for.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, that's very interesting. I mean, I'm a pretty middle of the road kind of guy, and I think I I thought it was I thought it was well done. I, um, you know, I think back. I think the Guardians probably learned its lessons as well. Um, Remember, in two thousand and four, it went all in and trying to influence the election in Ohio. And in every county or district that the Guardian went into, the result went more the other way than it had in two thousand. So I think um, I think the Guardian has learned its lesson. I think it is fair, and I think that's a very sort of almost very American. You know, I think you're typical American. I think people over outside U.S. don't really see your typical american and i think the show this this is showing more uh, your average american and i think that is the normal reaction they people will look at it and if they think yeah no that's me that's that's honest may not like exactly what i said but no that that's a fair representation i think that's i think that's a quite a quite a, actually a um, quite a big uh, stamp of approval from for for the series so hold those thoughts um i think we're going to get now to the the 2020 election, but uh, we just need to take a, a break for our listeners.
0: You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases and upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests and the team behind the production. And now back to Factual America.
1: Welcome back to Factual America. Um, just uh, talking to Addy here about uh, his experiences on the campaign trail. And now, um, now let's look ahead because uh, I think your bags are nearly packed. You've got your tickets probably booked. You're heading to the U.S. in a few weeks' time uh, in the 2020 primaries. And uh, we've got a big day uh, coming up. Uh, 3rd of March uh, is what's called Super Tuesday. It's the biggest Super Tuesday ever. Uh, mainly because California has brought its primary forward, Texas is participating, so a good bulk of the um, delegates that are up for grabs, uh, a good third of the delegates that are up for grabs are going to be decided on that day. So um, maybe you can talk about uh, what are you seeing in this race sitting here in London? You've got an interesting perspective now. Um, what are you seeing? Similarities between 2016, 2018, and and the differences. So, what are the similarities you're seeing?
2: Um, I mean, I think a lot of the same. Um, I'll start with the differences, actually, because I okay, think the differences are really striking. Okay. Um, um, I do think that the Trump campaign, from what I saw in 2016, and what I'm seeing right now, and and you know, I haven't really been on the ground yet? But hopefully, you know, I'll have a better sense of it when I when I start to do that. Um, I think the Trump campaign is much more organized than they were in 2016. I think they're much more professional. I think they have a very, you know, um, they're much savvier and much and much slicker than they were. Um,
1: uh, I, I, you know, and I'm not uh, I'm not the expert, and I've not spent. Much time on campaign trails, but it, that has struck me too. Little things that are going on in terms of how they're able to dominate the news cycle, or use the news cycle to their advantage, even when it should be favoring the Democrats. Um, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Of it, but they, you know, they did this whole "Get Out the Vote" campaign in New Hampshire. So Donald Trump doubled the vote. You know, of any sitting incumbent Republican president, he's doubled the votes. This is a primary that no one should even be bothering going to. it's, it's a foregone conclusion. He's the candidate. Um, and it does seem like, yes, there's something, there's something here. I I think they're going to be quite a juggernaut in, in come November.
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, whether you look, whether you're looking at the metrics or you're looking at how they're positioning themselves to certain segments of the population, I think that it's quite uh, sophisticated, actually. Um, you know, one, um... I mean, whether it's fundraising or whether it's, you know, I, I was looking at their, um, you know, their Latino outreach, you know, operation, mm-hmm. for example. If you compare that with 2016, it's a, it's a world of a difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so what about, I mean, with that in mind, what about the Democrats? What do you see? I mean, uh, famously, Will Rogers, the American humorist, described that he said, I'm not a Democrat. I'm, I'm not a member of an organized uh, political party. I'm a Democrat. I mean, I think we're seeing a little bit of that uh, this time around. What, what are your impressions?
2: Um, you know. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to put it. I mean, yeah. I think, well, but it's it's expected, right? Donald Trump is the incumbent. He he is the Republican Party for all intents and purposes. Yeah. The Democrats are f- trying to find their voice and trying to figure out who's going to be, you know, well, who can they rally around, basically, yeah. and that's that's going to take some time.
1: Yeah, and I think we've got, I mean, everyone thought it was going to be... Uh, I've been here before. I've been in, well, been in the UK for a long time, so I've always been here, be- here before, been in the studio before. But uh, I think um, in looking at elections... Um, you know, get, you see this all the time. Remember when in 2008, everyone was just presuming Hillary will get the uh, get the nomination, and no, Obama got it. I mean, Joe Biden was the presumed winner just a few months ago. Now he's really struggling. Um, and you've got Bloom, Michael Bloomberg's entered the race. You've got uh, Pete Buttigieg. You've got uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the candidates and, uh, you know, where things stand right now?
2: Well... Um I mean, in my opinion, you know, regardless of political affiliation, I think um the if you're not running as an incumbent and you're running to challenge an incumbent, um the campaigns that have been most successful have been change candidates, um, by and large. And so it's not to me that surprising that Bernie Sanders will be doing as well as he is, just as in hindsight, mm. uh, it shouldn't be that surprising that Donald Trump did as well as he did and Barack Obama before him and, and you know, and on and on. And Bill Clinton and George Bush and, you know, you, you take it back a ways. Um, so, um, I mean, what am I seeing? I mean, I, I do think, you know, there's a real hunger for a change candidate in the Democratic Party. And what we're seeing so far anyway is that Joe Biden's probably not that person. Yeah. Um, so, um, beyond that, I really don't know. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm very interested in being there and sort of seeing it uh, unfold um, yeah. and observing.
1: Well, I think uh, you're, you're talking about change candidates, and obviously Trump ran against uh, Washington establishment. It's was all about draining the swamp and doing all kinds of other things. I think that takes us – it's a good point to go to another clip of yours, not from not from McDowell County this time. Actually, even though it's anywhere but Washington, you actually went to Washington. Uh, in, in 2016 and um, looking at how f- Donald Trump was going to fare um, I thought it was is an excellent piece because it, it, it you know it showed his supporters showing up these aren't your typical Washingtonians that you come across whatever your political stripe having having lived there myself uh, so this third clip uh, it's from uh, hope Against hypocrisy as Donald Trump joins the swamp and this one is um, an interview with uh, Sally Quinn, so you want to uh, set that up for us? A
2: sure. Um, so we, um, well, the series is called "Anywhere But Washington." So the idea was to do stories that were not in Washington. However, mm. we couldn't pass up the opportunity to attend Trump's inauguration and get a sense of how the incoming, uh, you know, administration and how Trump's people were basically set to change mm. the nature of, you know, Washington society, so to speak. Um, so we thought, where, who else? can better speak about Washington society than someone who is very firmly, you know, a, a very senior member of that society, let's say Sally Quinn. Okay.
1: Um, so uh, let's, uh, let's go to that clip now.
3: This
2: is Donald Trump's America
3: and it feels like business as usual. My next meeting was a longtime member of the Washington establishment. Sally Quinn is a writer, socialite, and gatekeeper to the political elite. People run against Washington. They have to run against Washington. As outsiders. Yes, you can't possibly get elected unless you trash Washington. But once you get here, you are the swamp. You run the show. You are Washington. You are everything that you ran against. You represent everything that you say you hate and that people in the country say they hate. And so that poses a real problem. Trump obviously was elected on a promise of transforming Washington, of cleaning it out. Do you think it's going to happen?
4: ain't going to happen.
3: I think that, you know, some of the people he's brought in, there are a lot of millionaires and billionaires, and I think that they'll be entertaining, and I think there'll be a whole new sort of Republican group. But generally, Washington kind of goes about its own business, and that's been true since, I think, really, the Nixon administration. The end of Inauguration Day and the start of a night of hobnobbing. Inauguration Balls have been a feature of Washington for two centuries. Some people say presidents come and go, but Washington never really changes. Access to the establishment doesn't come cheap. Corporate donors have been spending up to a million dollars for tickets to events like these. The other side of town town, and a very different kind of party. The Deplorable's inaugural ball was an unofficial gala for Trump supporters. They've taken over one of the city's most prestigious venues.
1: So I think that's a it's it's a great clip. I mean, as someone who lived in Washington in the '90s, I think uh, Sally Quinn is so typical of what you find in. Parts of Washington. Um, I noticed earlier in the, that piece you went to Ben's Chili Bowl, which I was happy to see because I used to live around the corner from there, and that was my local
0: yeah.
1: uh, place of uh, calf of, uh, of choice. Uh, but uh, I think um, you know she is she's so you know she's got this view that Washington's just going to eat Donald Trump and spit him out, or he's got or other if he doesn't adapt and become firmly Washingtonian, and then you go straight from there and you go to this, you know, this deplorable's inaugural ball, and I have been to an inaugural ball, and that's not like any inaugural ball that I've ever seen. Uh, And I thought it was, I thought quite a contrast there. Um, Now, what do we, how does Trump pull this off? He's no longer the change candidate, is he? Or how how is he going to, how is he going to keep running against Washington when he's firmly in Washington?
2: That's a, it's a really good question. Um, uh, I think that, Everything we've seen, a lot of what we've seen in the last, you know, well, since he's been elected has been his, you know, or his people's attempts to um, to run against Washington. So whether it's rhetoric around the deep state, the various, you know, pushing back against the various scandals, you know, the impeachment process, et cetera, they are fighting Washington all the way. And I think they'll continue to do that in some ways um, in terms of campaign strategy and PR. His impeachment, yeah. his, all of that is working in his favor. Um, he gets to claim outsider status even as, you know, he is becomes the establishment and is the establishment.
1: Mm. So what are you expecting to find when you, you know, when you land on the ground in a few weeks' time from the campaign trail? I mean, I know you don't want to prejudice yourself. You want to just let the cameras roll and see what you find. But what are, you, what are your sort of expectations going out there this time around?
2: Um, you know, I'm i i really you know at this stage um i have sort of general ideas around storylines that i'm interested in, in yeah. or, or lines of questioning let's say that i'm interested in but um but i don't really have um any expectations i should say you know i also um i uh, i haven't it's it's been interesting you know living in the us and covering u.s politics when you're in like it is a it's in your bloodstream like you can't avoid it, you know, um especially in the Trump era, you just cannot like get around it any any which way and you don't have to be a journalist. you could be any just a person who's mm. living and breathing. um I think living here um you know it's it, it is a bit different, and I don't want to go in with any assumptions, I guess
1: and so you're are you gonna ask the Ronald Reagan question are you gonna ask people are they better off now than they were four years ago
2: i Absolutely. That, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and but you know I, I think as we saw in West Virginia, it it is a question of perception, and perception is a very powerful powerful motivator.
1: Um, All right. So it wouldn't be uh, we couldn't have a a special edition uh, Super Tuesday uh, episode of the podcast if I didn't ask you for some predictions. Not for the November. I'm not going to put you on the spot because we're hoping to have you back if uh, if if we haven't scared you off. Um, after you come back from uh, from the States. But, uh, I mean, on Super Tuesday, what do you think? What Or is it... Um...
2: Well, hmm. I... Uh, you know, there are a lot of people that make a much better living than I do making predictions. That's not something that I really...
1: Uh, and they're usually wrong. <laughs>
2: and they're usually wrong, and I'm sure I will be wrong as well. Um, I mean, I, I do think... Um, yeah, I, I think um, right now what I'm seeing is that change candidates are doing, you know, are going to do very well. Um, so I do think that people, candidates like Bernie Sanders, um, Pete Buttigieg, you know, I think are going to uh, surprise people and do better than, uh, than they think. And I think establishment candidates are going to not do that well. Okay.
1: And uh, I didn't even have it down on my notes, but uh, do you think America would consider a socialist? Uh, Can a socialist even get the Democratic nomination? And that's Bernie Sanders, obviously.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a good question. Um, I think it is possible, um, but I also think that um, it's going to be a difficult general election if Bernie Sanders were to be the nominee. Um, I just think there's a lot of opposition research that's not even out there yet. um, Mm. And I think that there's going to be, it's not going to be hard for the Republicans to paint him as an extremist, so I I think it's going to be difficult.
1: I guess they're going to be probably uh, finding all kinds of archive footage from what, his younger days. Uh, yeah, you and a
2: lot of that stuff is already out there and yeah. it's easy to find. I can find it, you yeah. can find it, anyone can find it, and we don't even know. Well, I I know that there's other stuff out there that um yeah that might come out. So. Yeah,
1: I mean some of it's been fairly tame. I've seen stuff. I think the Buttigieg people put it out of Bernie saying he. Uh, Didn't like either in the 60 election, because that's how old Bernie is, uh, the 1960 election between Nixon and JFK, that he – that's the election that turned it for him. You know, he – and sort of opposed JFK because he just saw him as part of the – firmly as part of this establishment. I mean, that's mild, I think, compared to the – you know, some of the stuff they're going to end up uh, being able to to dig out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's – I mean, I think – it's going to be very interesting we're going to see how well this uh, podcast dates itself in uh, um, uh, in terms of uh, of the result in a in a couple weeks but a uh, couple weeks time but uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself and projects you've got on the go so you obviously you're going to be doing this for the for the guardian um, but uh, what have you been doing on the since you moved to the uk you even told me you're working on a script i think so
2: uh, you know yeah um so you know it's been uh, it's been an interesting experience. I've been here almost two years now yeah. and uh, um, have worked a little bit here in the UK, but a lot of my work has taken me back to the US, um, and that's not going to be any different this year. Um, yeah. I've got a couple other projects in the pipeline. Uh, we are finishing an hour uh, documentary um, that is actually a reversioning of a, another series I made for PBS um, that actually focuses, it's also politics. Somehow I Keep coming back to politics, but, um, but I was interested in, um, ethnic minorities and who are republicans and who are trump supporters or who got pushed into becoming trump supporters for various reasons. And I was curious to see how they were doing in the trump era. Um so we my producing partner and I made a made a series for PBS about that and we're now re-versioning it um, okay. for international distribution.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's Emmy that you won in for with NewsHour in 2016, The uh, Deadly Oil Fields. What was that about?
2: Um, It was about worker safety in uh, the fracking industry in North Dakota. So, essentially, this was at a time when oil prices were um, starting to tank in a big way, in part because of the fracking boom. Uh, And what we were finding was that the contracting relationships, just like, you know, the the nature of modern business is… You know these sort of like m- m- like labyrinthine structures of contracting arrangements, mm. and which sort of outsources risk really onto the operators that are sort of the the middle operators and and as the the, the lower down the contracting system you go, and so we found that there were a number of loopholes there that um, that essentially in- insulated companies from accountability for staves for pretty egregious safety lapses, and there were some really there was a really horrific case that we followed where. Uh, it, there was a lethal uh, explosion that led to, uh, mm. you know, a really horrific death. Um,
1: and uh, well, and was that a series or was it just a?
2: No, it was an investigation. So we, um, I, at the time, I was working for a nonprofit called the Center for Investigative Reporting. We uh, uh, were making a public radio, a, a public radio program um, that's on, I think. I don't know how many hundreds of NPR stations now, but um, but so we were doing a radio version, a version for the PBS Newshour that we had a partnership with, uh, as well as uh, text uh, stories uh, in in sort of print outlets.
1: Okay. So Eddie, you've got this keen eye for uh, what's going on in the U.S. and for stories and I think everyday people, and uh, it's it's really less. I would say these this series is less, in some ways, less about politics and more about people and americans and i think that's why um i've really enjoyed watching uh, the the several clips i have watched now i think it's uh it's it's excellent i think it's very human i think it's, these are human stories and i think that's when documentary filmmaking is at its at its best uh so you've got this keen eye now you've got the keen eye of an outsider who's been here for a couple of years what are your impressions of the of the uk now that you've been here
2: yeah um so i uh I'm still really getting to know this place. Um, I had a chance to um, work as a camera uh, camera operator on uh, on uh, the Guardian's general election coverage um, for the uh, for the just the UK general election that just happened, which got me out of London and and got me sort of out you know to Scotland, Northern Ireland, um, you know Midlands, etc., yeah. Southeast, um, and uh, you know I uh, you know as someone who grew up in I would say, not a metropolis and lived and worked in the south of southern United States and, you know, spent a good chump, chunk of my formative experiences there. I, uh, It's very different moving to London and then sort of exploring the rest of the country as someone who lives here because I still feel like I, you know, I'm still coming, starting to learn about, you know, uh, what's actually going on.
1: Well, I mean, as someone who lived in London for many years, uh upwards of 16 or 17, I've, I've now moved up north. And so it's, it's been an interesting, uh, it does give you an interesting perspective that you don't get when you're, you're sitting in London. It's almost like what people probably think of people who spend their whole lives in Washington, D.C., or even New York City or L.A. Um, but y- as you said, you covered a little bit of the general election. Are you seeing similarities? Because a lot of people try to draw parallels between what happened with Brexit, what's happened to the Labour Party, breaking through the Red Wall... Here in the UK and what's been going on in in the US. What do you think?
2: Uh, in my opinion, it's very tempting to make these comparisons, but I think they're quite superficial. I think America is a vastly more diverse and more complicated, and a, it's just a bigger place with a lot more people, and uh, and a, just a, a and its own complexities. And so, I think these comparisons um, they sort of they sort of level off, you know, at a point. I mean, I, I get it. Um, I was. Just the other day, I was, you know, watching the James Carville rant. I don't know if you saw that, but um, essentially, you know, talking about, yeah, how a Bernie Sanders, you know, um, uh, nomination, uh, you know, if Bernie Sanders were to be the candidate, he would tank the way, you know, the Jeremy Cor- Corbyn, the Corbin candidacy sort of, you know, tanked in this country. Um, I... I'm. I'd be very careful of making those kinds of comparisons. I think it's a very different scenario.
1: Well, I heard um, uh, another podcast. Um, I do listen to other podcasts besides our own. Um, another one had uh, Andrew Sullivan on, uh, British uh, by birth and raised here in uh, in, in south of London, but uh, uh, now firmly in the U.S. and a political commentator. And it was interesting. Uh, he actually they uh, were try to get him to say that Boris Johnson was the Trump character. And he actually said Corbyn was more the Trump character, which was an interesting point because he was saying someone who's run against his own party, taken over his own party, you know, in that sense, he felt that uh, Corbyn was a little bit more like a, a Trump. It's, it's an interesting perspective, but mm-hmm. I think it it points out these, <clears throat> the dangers of drawing too many parallels. Uh, but do you think there is a commonality in that there is this hunger for change, and there is this wanting to give uh, one finger or two fingers, since we're in the UK, some people still use that gesture, uh, to, to the establishment. You know, people up north, longtime Labour voters are just, we're going to vote whichever way we know the establishment doesn't want us to vote. Do you think there's a there is some... Commonality there?
2: Yeah, no, I, I think, I think at that level, I, I do agree, and I think that that is something that we're seeing in many mature democracies, and also democracies that don't have, you know, the kind of history that this country or the United States, for that matter, have. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of populism is a feature of our of our age. You know, right now, so whether that's Brazil or India or, you know, many of countries in Eastern Europe, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing some of that everywhere.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think that's a very good point. All right. Um I think my producer's whispering in my ear and we're we're going to have to be wrapping up pretty soon here. But uh one last uh, question about the series Anywhere but Washington. I mean, it's gotten well I think millions of views some of the some of the uh, episodes. Uh, did you expect that sort of uh, re- response and uh uh, who are the you know wh- where's your who's the who's the audience and uh you know maybe you could tell us a little bit more about uh, did it you know did it surprise you that it's been so popular
2: um it's definitely been a surprise um so the the series roughly 20 million views cumulatively to date um and uh um I would say, I mean, i it's been a while since I've looked at some of the metrics, but I think something like 70% of the audience is not from the U.S. So, um, The Guardian has, you know, uh, um, The Guardian has a growing audience in the U.S. Um, however, you know, it has, a, a, you know, really a global reach. And so, you know, if you look at where where the views are coming from, they're from all over the place. Um, a, um, a lot of them, I mean, majority not in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um was I surprised? Absolutely. Um, I think there is an interest, you know, in topical, you know, like, I think the reason that it works is because it is topical and it's able to react quite, it's very nimble. We're putting things out when people are sort of, when, when it's in the conversation, so to speak. A lot of filmmaking takes a long time. It is, you know, um, and it's, our our series is also not that polished. I mean, we're we're literally just like you know hitting the ground. We're doing what we can, and we're getting it out there. And I think that um that you know I think that's that's a very successful way to well, it turns out it's a quite a successful way to start a series from scratch.
1: And do you think the outsider's perspective helps?
2: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely.
1: And it's very interesting those uh those metrics you're talking about because I remember a time when, because uh, I've looked at this many times on the the. the the future of newspapers, or lack thereof, and you know certainly the the Guardian when they were building their audience outside the UK it was all US primarily. I mean, it makes sense, you know, English, you know, the inc- commonality of the English language and all that. But it is very interesting that so much of that now it, it's become a global audience.
2: Absolutely, and you know I wouldn't underestimate the fact that the Trump phenomenon, for better or for worse, is people are just. You know, fascinated and curious, and so you know, and people outside the U.S. are also fascinated and curious, and so, you know, that's I think that's reflected in our viewership.
1: Well, like U.S. comedians and, and talk show hosts always say about certain political candidates, they hope they get they they do pull for them to get reelected because they it's just fodder for you know for their uh, for their material. So um, yeah, I think uh, you have benefited. You've been at sort of right place at right time with this, haven't you? And also have done a done a, a you know, a, a great, great job in turning these things around so quickly. Um, I just want to thank you, Eddie, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, it's Eddie Sambermerti. Uh, we've been talking uh, all all uh, morning about anywhere but Washington. Uh, which uh, – where's the best way to – is it still YouTube or Guardian site or where's the best way? Yeah,
2: I think, you know, if you were to just simply Google anywhere but Washington and The Guardian, you'll you'll find it.
1: And we'll put something in the show notes that will be on the on the podcast. Uh, and where can we follow you? What's the best way to kind of keep track of your
2: – I'm around. I'm on Twitter. I'm, uh, you know, uh, my website is addysamba.com. Okay. Um,
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, Again, we'll try to we'll put that in the show notes as well. So those of you listening, you can just click on there, and uh, it takes you to Eddie's website. Um, Well. I just want to say uh, thank everyone to lis- for listening. I want to give a shout out to uh, Spiritland Studios here for their hospitality yet again. And just to remind you that uh, please like us and share us with your friends and family wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. And if you have any uh, comments, feedback, we're always uh, looking for uh, for our listeners to get back in touch with us, even ideas for future shows, guests, uh, Please, uh, again, the show notes, there's links to us. There's ways of reaching me or, or, the, or the show. And, um, yeah, I think uh, that's a wrap. And this is uh, Factual America signing off.
0: You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guest and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, festivals we're attending and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.